Well, like I said, today we're wrapping up this series, Invitation to Wholeness, or on the Invitation to Generosity. Um, and as you've, if you've been here, if you're new, welcome. Uh, but if you've been here throughout the series, I've been framing this as sort of an invitation, overarching invitation to participate in the life that God's called us to. So uh, the life of God is a life of participation, mutual participation. God, through God's Spirit, participating with us as we walk the earth, us participating with God as God moves in, in our lives. So, and today we're looking at this invitation to generosity, which is one of the ways the Bible most frequently talks about how we participate in the life of God, whether that's through the giving of our time or our talent, like our vocations, the gifts we've been given, or um, how we understand and steward our treasure, our, our, our resources, financial resources. And right there, I just, at the mention of money, I just want to clear a couple things up. Number one, this is not a fundraising sermon. Um, so, Moving the offering up earlier in the service is not a tactic. We're not doing another offering. We're not starting a campaign at Bethany that I know of. We're not thinking of that. It's just part and parcel of what it means to participate in our lives with God, to offer ourselves to God in every way that God has um, moved us to. Um, Not just in particular seasons, but in every day that we walk. Which brings us to number two. Um, Money is not really a topic uh, when you think of it. Uh, It's easier to talk about time and talent. But money is not really a topic that we, as Americans, tend to... It brings us a lot of joy. Uh, Americans would rather talk about almost anything than money. I read an article in the Atlantic Monthly recently that highlights this reality. It it noted a survey from financial and market research firms that found that 34% of cohabitating couples, both unmarried and married... One or both partners couldn't correctly identify how much money the other makes. And that only 17% of parents uh, with children under the age of 18 that make above $100,000 a year, so that's maybe some of us, um, had told or planned to tell their children at any point in their lives how much they earn or their net worth, how much is in their savings accounts, and that people are, quote-unquote, more comfortable talking with their friends and their their families about marital discord, mental health, addiction, race, sex, and politics than money. Money is at the bottom of the list of conversations we want to talk about. Conversations around money are literally, at least culturally, something that we just tend to not to come to with a fuzzy and warm feeling, right? And so, and this is particularly true as we engage in this conversation in the church. There's been a lot in the history of, especially the evangelical church, of abuse around Money, and so we have a complicated relationship around this topic as we come into religious spaces, I think. Um, we bring other experiences, perhaps. And then it's also challenging, at another layer to this, currently in this real time in our wider culture, inflation is at historic highs. Um, the cost of living is ever on the rise. Uh, the cost of consumer items is skyrocketing. It's one of those things that seems to be most out of control. I literally filled my gas tank up the other day to the tune of $100 which was a super bummer, especially as I think about driving around Ireland for three weeks with my family this summer. Like, oh my goodness, this trip just got way more expensive. And so this conversation around money and generosity is at the very least challenging for us. So as we come into the conversation, I kind of want to enter into the conversation, a challenging conversation by a different door, so to speak. And that's by the door of a story. You know, we often see Jesus approaching difficult conversations such as money, by way of story. He comes at the edge of a tricky thing, a tricky topic, and what does he do? He tells a parable. You know, he's starting a parable series next week. Jesus tells a ton of parables, and there's a reason for that. We engage in difficult things through story. 
And that helps us in some ways to look at things through, difficult things especially, through a new lens or from a different perspective, maybe with a different set of questions than we've come with, and perhaps shift something in us, in our minds, in our hearts, and and perhaps maybe God would move us in a new direction. And so I want to share a little story about giving and generosity, a little parable. This is not a parable of Jesus, so not to confuse things. This is not in the Bible. So just, it's a little story I heard back on the East Coast when I was living and working there years ago. And here's how it goes. Once upon a time, there was a gardener. And this gardener loved his king. He lived in the kingdom. This is a long, long time ago, okay? And he had grown this. He's a vegetable garden. He had grown this enormous carrot. And so he took this carrot to his king and he said, my Lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow. And so I want to present it to you as a token of my love and gratitude. And the king, uh, being a good noble king, was touched by this gesture and the generosity of this man's heart, so much so that as the man turned to go, the king said to him, wait, you're clearly a good steward of the earth. And I own a plot of land right next to you. I know where you live. I own a plot of land right next to your land. And so I want to give you that plot freely as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted by this gift, and he went home rejoicing. So there was also a nobleman in the king's court that was there that day and overheard what this gardener had done. And he said to himself, my goodness, if that's what you get for a carrot, what could you get if you gave the king something better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and, he, and he's leading a handsome black stallion. And he bowed low and he said to the king, my lord, I breed horses and this is the finest horse I've ever bred or ever will breed and I want to give it to you as a token of my love and my gratitude for you. And so the king took the horse and he simply said to the man, thank you. And he dismissed the man to go home. Now the old man was perplexed because <laughs> he noticed in the king a little bit of indifference toward his gift and the king being wise and discerning, perceived this. And so he said to the nobleman, let me explain to you what's going on here. See, the gardener's gift that you noticed yesterday was a gift of love and sacrifice from the heart. Your gift was motivated by greed and by profit. Indeed, the gardener that you witnessed yesterday gave me the carrot. You're giving yourself the horse. The gardener gave me the carrot. You're giving yourself the horse. Now, the kids that were just here, and there's a couple still in the room, if I told this story with them here, they're not going to need a Sunday school lesson or a preacher to tell them the moral of the story, which is eat your vegetables. I'm, ki- I'm kidding. That's a joke. Nobody in their right mind would take the carrot, right? But the king does. And, and obviously, the carrot isn't the point of the story. There's something more here. And, and the, answer, the answer, the point of the story, the king offers it actually, it really gets the meaning behind the story, which is to say the king isn't really, he doesn't really care about the gifts, ultimately. Uh, the king doesn't need more horses. He's the king. He probably has a stable of horses. And for all we know, he doesn't really like carrots that much. I mean, I, without ranch dressing, and I'm guessing they didn't have ranch back then, I could take or leave carrots, right? You, and Reese, you're the same way, right? Ranch with carrots, and that's it. Um, What the king of the story seems to care most about is not the gifts, but the motivation behind the gifts, if you heard that, the why of giving. And so this morning, what I want to do with you as we come to this kind of touchy, maybe a little difficult, sticky conversation around giving and generosity is explore with you what are the motivations behind generosity. Again, we're talking about the whole thing, time, talent, and treasure. 
but it just, it can't just be that generosity and giving are, are just good for us to do. That, you know, moral and they're, they're moral and right. That's what good Christians do. And so to be good, right, and moral Christians, we sort of like Boy Scouts, we give, right? That's, it's, that's, there has to be something more to it, right? And so this text and that story, but this text in 2 Corinthians, I think offers some of those underlying motivations in a really nuanced and beautiful way. So let's look at some of those. And we're going to look at three of them. You guessed it. <laughs> we're going to look at the motivation of gratitude, the motivation of provision, and the motivation of redemption. Okay? Gratitude will be a longer section here. And so don't worry if you feel like, whoa, that was a big one. We'll, I'll, I'll contain the last two. So first, gratitude. And we're going to work it backwards. So if you do follow along, we're going to start toward the end of chapter 9 and work our way back up into chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. And these two chapters together are, if you read the Bible, the longest and most explicit section on giving and generosity in the entire Bible. And so they're kind of a place in which a lot of conversations happened around this theme. So first, gratitude. Uh, Chapter 9, verses 11 to 15, you see it right there in verse 11 that their giving, this is the church in Corinth, has resulted in thanksgiving to God. Uh, Verse 12, Paul acknowledges that their giving is not only supplying for physical, emotional, and spiritual needs, but is also, quote, overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Verse 15, he kind of ends with this non sequitur, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. You've all heard that line. And so this is all to say in a nutshell that radical generosity, which is what Paul's calling us toward, according to the Bible, is tied to, or you might say motivated by, the practice of, or the experience of gratitude. Radical generosity is motivated by the practice of gratitude. And that's super key for us. Because as I say that, it's probably good to acknowledge that gratitude as a topic is not only prevalent today, everybody's talking about it, it's very um, in vogue, but in that sense, it's also become very cliche and trite. Um, There are countless social media, I'm pretty much off social media, but there are countless social media quotes and memes on gratitude, if you're on those spaces. There are websites, there's books, there's one of the top-selling books on Amazon right now in the self-help section. It's called Good Days Start with Gratitude, a 52-week guide to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. And while many credit Oprah Winfrey for that uh, statement, attitude of gratitude, actually, that slogan came from 1909, actually, in a book entitled The Ideal Made Real by Christian Larson, who's said to be the founder of the New Thought Movement, if you know much about New Thought, that gave way to people like Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich, and then ultimately Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking. And, and he says, Norman Vincent Peale in his book, which is a mega bestseller, that whenever a negative thought concerning your personal powers comes to mind, deliberately voice a, a positive thought to cancel it out. The power of positive thinking. And right there, with that really brief history of new thought, kind of new age gratitude, that positivity movement, I think what we all might sense in some ways is both how gratitude can feel at one level inauthentic, like it's not really meaningful, and also unhelpful and somehow harmful in some ways. Um, it's today something called, it's become known as toxic positivity in some, in some circles. There was this uh, Washington Post article published several years ago that gave a, a voice to this that said that many in our society will naturally feel excluded from the increasingly prevalent gratitude equation in which there's a mindset of thankfulness. And that mindset's supposed to multiply one's blessings. Just be grateful and you'll be blessed. People who've lost everything in wildfires, fires, relatives of victims of mass shootings, those suffering from physical or emotional distress, 
can understandably feel locked out of the reported benefits of gratefulness. Um, and I think that's really important to name, especially as we read Scripture, which is often voicing thanks to God. You know, it's on almost every page, you know. It, we, if we reflect on this challenge as we're reading the Bible, I mean, what does it mean to be grateful, to practice gratitude when, you know, and how can that be a motivating force behind generosity when I don't particularly feel very grateful right now and my life doesn't look very grateful? How are those two linked? Um, well, one of the things I love about the Bible, if you've been around here long, you're going to have heard me talk about this before, is that among the, the songs and the prayers of the Bible, which are the Psalms, one-third of those, a full third of those, are called Psalms of Lament. And you've heard us talk about this here. Which are the songs and the poems and the prayers where the authors in those songs cry out to God out of some deep distress and despair in their life, both personally and corporately. So one example that is really uh, meaningful to me is Psalm 13. This is a personal psalm of lament where David says, How long will you hide your face from me, O God? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me, Lord, and answer. Give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I've overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. And then verse 5, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I'll sing the Lord's praise, for he's been good to me. And what's fascinating about that psalm and other psalms in the lament kind of tradition is has how they almost always have two distinct features. Really, actually, three. There's an acknowledgement of deep distress. And then the second is that there's a petition in some way. So in verse 3, look on me and answer, O Lord. Give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death. And then... The third thing is that how they invariably give way to an expression of trust in God. So verse 5, David says, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Did you notice that? And it's in almost every one of the Psalms of Lament, there's a shift from despair to trust. And I think it's critical for us as we think about what it means for gratitude to be a motivating force in our lives behind generosity and all number of things. Um, because there's this shift. It's subtle, but it's significant from so that to because. You heard the so that in Norman's appeal, like if you just, you know, name it and claim it. You know, if you just are grateful, God's going to bless you. That's kind of a way of putting that. And David doesn't do that. He moves to because. The psalmist's joy and hope are not dependent upon the outcomes of any situation. If I praise God, you know, then God will deliver me. Instead, they're rooted in the reality of God's prior and constant character and activity, God's goodness, God's unfailing love, God's saving work. It's independent of anything that the psalmist prays or does or circumstance in the psalmist's life. And how this relates to gratitude and generosity is, is, is that many of us, and I'll put myself in this category, give to get. We often give to get. We serve maybe to get a feeling out of serving. I'm not saying if you're serving here that you're doing that, but we often do that. We give charitably, maybe to take away a sense of guilt. Uh, maybe, maybe that is subconscious, but it happens. We offer ourselves out of obligation to feel better about maybe a situation that we're in. Um, there's a lot of shame and guilt in our lives, so we sometimes give to feel better. I mean, giving makes us feel happy. The science shows that. There's a whole TED Talk out there on this theme. If you want to go watch it, um, it's, it's called How... 
to buy happiness. There's like four and a half million views on this thing. Clearly, people are watching this. And, and the, the, what the talk shows is that, and what research says it shows is that giving can make you feel better. It just does. And what I think Psalm 13 and other Psalms like it is pointing out to us, and what 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is also reminding us of, is that while that is true, you know, giving of ourselves can make us feel better. And that's not bad. You're not bad if you give and you feel better. It's just going to happen. It happens. It's part of being human. That's just a fact. The motivational shift, if we can put ourselves in the shoe of the gardener again, behind our giving of ourselves, our resources, our lives, in the light of the gospel, must be a shift from so that to because. From giving not so that we can feel good, giving not so that we can feel better about ourselves or a situation or the world in which we live or an experience, but instead because of God's goodness, um, because we've experienced and come into contact with God's unfailing love, as David says, because God is faithful. We love, as, as John writes in his first letter to the church, because we have been first loved. That's a reality for us as followers of Christ. We love because we've been loved first. And so we give in response to a great love. Uh, We give because we've experienced the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God. We give out of relationship to God and out of the fullness and the overflowing of God within us. We give because we've received so much. That's the gospel right there. And that's why Paul calls this in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians the grace of giving. He ties giving to the grace of God. There's something about generosity that's fundamentally a response to what we've experienced inside the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Brene Brown has a book out called The Atlas of the Heart. How many of you have seen this? A couple. Okay, well, it's a good book. So check it out if you like Brene Brown. And she has a little uh, section on gratitude there. She draws on the work of this guy named Robert Emmons, who she describes as the world's leading scientific expert on gratitude. How about that for a job title? If I could be the world's leading scientific expert on gratitude, that'd be saying something for my life. But this is what he says. He said that gratitude allows us to participate more fully in life. Instead of adapting to goodness, we celebrate it. I love that. I'm not sure if he's a follower of Christ, but I love the idea that instead of adapting to goodness, like this good thing's happening, you know, and we adapt to it, we, we are participating and celebrating goodness. That's what generosity as it relates to Thanksgiving is really about. It's inviting us to participate more fully in the life of God's prior and persistent and sustained action, God's goodness. Does that make sense to you? A couple nods? I hope so. So that's, that's the invitation to gratitude in a nutshell, you know. Here's the second thing, which is the motivation of provision, and it kind of relates. Um, in verse 8, Paul says, God's able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, all times, having all you need, you'll abound in every good work. And then he says in verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest of righteousness. And what he's emphasizing there is as we think about giving again, like we've already noted, that God so abundantly provided it for everything we need, but also everything we have belongs to God in the first place which is sort of the other side of this coin. God will supply everything we we need, but it's God's in the first place, you know? Uh, Go back to the gardener and the the nobleman. 
It's the king's carrot. It's the king's horse. It, he doesn't need the gifts. They're, they're the king's. It's the king's kingdom, which is something that I think many of us have likely heard, you know, before, but nonetheless, it runs utterly counter to everything in our culture. Um, many of us are maybe familiar with that poem by William Ernst Henley Invictus, you know, you know that poem? Um, that, that line in that poem, and Invictus is a Latin word for unconquerable or undefeated, and, and Henley wrote this after he apparently lost one of his legs and had it amputated and had to face basically death. You know, he's facing his own mortality. And um, it's been this powerfully inspiring poem for many people, including Nelson Mandela, as he endured decades of imprisonment under apartheid. And it has that line in the poem, you know, that says, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And that's a really inspiring line, but there's also a shadow side to it. Because it, it, you put it differently, it, it culturally for us can mean this. I'm in the driver's seat of my life. Um, it's me who determines my future. I get to make the choices around what I not only eat today, but what I decide to do and who I do it with, and my job, what I, my career, my stuff, whether that's time, talent, or treasure. It's, it's like saying, it's up to me to earn and secure my future. And nobody is ultimately the owner of it than me. And by the way, I deserve it. You know, I deserve it. How many times a day do you hear that? And, you know, you deserve it. This is in all the advertising today. It's in that old Mars bar commercial you remember that one? Some of you are old enough to remember that. It's in that new Dr. Pepper commercial that was in the Super Bowl a while ago. Nobody knows. It's in this one here, which it, the Buick Regatta. How many of you wanted the Buick Regatta growing up? You deserve it, Spencer. I mean, this is a, this is a machine right there. I know you want a sports car. You should go buy one. I'm sure there's a few out there. <laughs> you see this prevailing attitude in our culture Every day that you've earned it, you deserve it, it's yours. You know, treat yourself. But here's the deal. If you believe in a God of grace, and you believe in a God of creation, and you believe in a God of incarnation and redemption, as we do, then at some level, at nothing in our lives is ours. Nothing is earned. Nothing is deserved. It's all of it, all of it is a gift. Every single thing, that breath you just took was a gift. The lungs that took the breath, you didn't create those. You don't keep them inflated. We don't even know how that, I don't know. I mean, Jason, you could tell me, but it works and I'm thankful that I can breathe. That's a gift. The brain that you're using to process the words right now that I'm speaking, that's a gift. The life you're living, both the, the highs and the lows, all of it's a gift the sorrows and the joys, the body you're inhabiting, the family and the community that we're part of. On the, the big Sundays like last Sunday at the zoo and the small Sundays like Father's Day, that's a gift. The job you do, whether that's staying at home with your kids or going out in the marketplace, um, that's a gift. The time you have throughout the day, every moment, which includes the moment you wake up. I've talked about this before and I take that for granted too often. All the moments during the day at work when maybe you're toiling away, and even the weekend. That's a gift. The salvation story part of this moment, this moment, even though I'm yakking at you, is a gift. Even this moment's a gift. It's not ours. None of it is ours. 
To put it differently, to borrow Paul's language from 1 Corinthians 7, or 4, chapter, verse 7, he says, what do you have that's not a gift? Sort of a rhetorical question. We all know the answer, nothing. Nothing. And I challenge you to think for a moment about one thing in your life that isn't a gift. Think of it. I did this this week. I couldn't think of a thing. Honestly, if I'm trying to be honest, and I want you to be honest with yourselves, that is not a gift. What if we lived believing that every single thing in our lives is just a free gift? Um, everything we've been given, or everything, we, everything we're part of has been abundantly provided for us. This is a, a move in the scarcity kind of conversation from abundance to provision. There are some times when it's just enough, you know? But God is providing nonetheless. What would happen to us if we, we live with that mindset? We'd, have, we'd probably have a lot of friends if we think of, about giving because people would be so generous. Nothing I have is mine. It's a gift. So I want to give it to you as well. I want to share it with you. But I think more importantly, we'd be free. We'd be free from self-concern, free from this overwhelming burden of self-preservation, free from, like I mentioned, the insidious lie of scarcity. Um, Bernie Brown talks about that in that book I mentioned. She says that, we either want things for the wrong reasons and then we feel disappointed when we, you know, we acquire them. They just aren't enough to make us feel whole. So we accumulate, we never value, we never appreciate. We're, we're being invited by God to remember that there's enough. Maybe it's just enough. But everything we have that's necessary for life and living has been given and has been done. And this is what Jesus says on the cross. It's finished. I mean, there's a profound theological truth there. It's complete. The story of God is complete. And, and that means that there, our lives are at a level complete. There's nothing we need to do to earn or accomplish more, to complete ourselves and our stories, to acquire more meaning in the world, to procure significance, you know, as I think many are wont to do. It's finished which gets to this final motivation I want to talk about real quick, which is this motivation of redemption. So back in chapter 8, real quick, uh, Paul said that, that statement that a lot of us have heard, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. We've often heard this. Some of us may have memorized that in a Sunday school class as kids. And I'll just say, if you're not a Christian, or if you are a Christian, a lifelong Christian here today, you could do no worse than sit with that verse for hours, for days, and meditate on it. They're, the most seasoned follower of Christ could do no worse than just sit with that. That is the gospel right there. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for our sake, he became poor, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. That's just the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus was rich. He is part co-eternal with God, Father, Son, Spirit, part of the Trinity. And yet this rich Christ willingly, sacrificially became poor. He willingly and radically divested himself of his wealth, so to speak, and became poor. Not just spiritually, we kind of spiritualize the poverty of Jesus, but literally, literally impoverished, literally born into a Palestinian, a poor Palestinian child, born into a first century family, a poor teenage parents with apparently nothing. He's literally poor. So much so that when Paul says in 2 Corinthians, 
uh, earlier in 2 Corinthians, that Jesus became sin for us. That's a level of poverty that uh, God didn't need to take on, which means that he experienced everything we experience in our lives or ever will experience. For him, that included the experience of obscurity and suffering. It included the, the profound misunderstanding and rejection. It included systemic evil, political, religious. He allowed himself to be mocked and shamed and broken and spit on and even crucified. That's not poverty in the abstract. That's just real poverty in every way and shape and form that human beings could ever experience it. And so the question becomes, why? Like, why does God need to become poor like that for us? And Paul answers the question, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. And and it's not rich in the sense of like the nobleman who just wants to apparently give his horse so that he could maybe have a, a better position in the king's court. Maybe a little more horse, horses. Oh, I saw this guy got some land. Maybe I could get some more land for myself too and become wealthier. That's not the sense of richness that God is talking about here. It's rich in the sense that we now get to share in all that God is and all of who God is. God's goodness, the fullness of God. We're beloved, we're chosen, we're redeemed. And what's so interesting is that Paul, he says that. We're rich not doing evangelism. He's not trying to change anybody's minds. You know what he's doing? He's doing fundraising. <laughs> he's trying to get them to open their pockets. I told you this is not a fundraising sermon. But that's, that's fascinating to me. He's trying to get them to give their money to the work of God. And while doing that, what does he do? He reminds them of the gospel. Remember, we're talking about the motivation of redemption here. And the key is he does not do it as a command. You know, if you read this, he says, I, I don't, I'm not telling you you have to do this. I'm not commanding you or demanding generosity from you. I would never do that of you. Generosity is, is it can't come out of compulsion or obligation if it's going to be genuine. The radical generosity, like I said earlier, that we offer has to come out of a prior love. God loved us and so we can love. The radical generosity that Paul has in mind is not commanded, it's spontaneous. It's produced out of a heart that's been changed by the gospel. Um, you know, this note, and I'll finish with this, that I was given some years ago. Um, it was in one, one of my old journals, and I, was, I happened to be sharing these with my daughter this week. She was writing something, and I was pulling out old journals as middle-aged parents are, oh, remember this time? You've done it? Yeah, well, I was back in Kenya, and I'm reading these things to her, and, and, uh, and this little note fell out, and uh, it's a little handwritten note, and uh, it has this question on the top, which is, what is your only comfort in life and death, which happens to be uh, the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. You have to remember I'm Presbyterian, so this is my jam. I know most of you aren't, so just roll with me, Okay. But this resonated, so I'm going to share this. Um, And the question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And here's the answer. That I belong, body and soul, in life and death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins, has completely freed me from the domain of the devil, that he protects me so well that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that everything must fit 
God's purpose for my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life. It's okay, Mim, you're fine. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Wholeheartedly ready and willing to live for him. You know, if that's true, if that's what the gospel means, that we don't have to work to achieve, to fill in the gaps, to fix things, to secure a future, that's all been done for us, I think we get to rest. I think that's what it's all about, just resting in the gospel. And our lives can then be a response in every way that God calls us to respond you know, you have that story in the gospel where the, the greatest gift that's ever been given in the life of Jesus is one, one coin, the widow's mite. The greatest gift you give today is your heart. Um, wholeheartedly willing. And so my question, I guess, is does that describe your heart today? Are you wholeheartedly willing? I have to confess I'm not always wholeheartedly willing as one of your pastors. You know, I don't wake up that way. I'm, if I'm honest, I can... And I want to be honest with you, uh, I can sometimes awake into the day wondering what the day is going to hold. And I told Andrew this earlier, like wondering if there's going to be enough time in my day to get the work done that I want to do. If I am going to be enough for the task ahead, not only for the work, but for my family, in my relationships. If, and I can sometimes be resentful that of the things that have happened to me or that are happening to me that are taking me away from what I really want to do. I'm not resting in God's grace. And my heart kind of locks up. And I'm not wholeheartedly willing. How, what about you? How's your heart today? I guess that's the question I want to leave you with. What's the state of your heart as you come to God? And I imagine some of us don't know where we stand with God, and so we're not sure if we believe in this gospel story, this thing I just read, our hearts might be kind of cold to the grace of God and distant to that. Um, Like when we think about it, it doesn't stir us up that much. The sermon's not stirring you up that much. It's about money, whatever. And maybe there's some grief in there too. You know, you remember being a kid and you remember just being so excited about Jesus and that's not happening for you anymore. So my prayer for you, for us all, would be that we might come to know that this kind of thing I just read, we might come to know God's grace in a growing and active way. We might come into a growing and active awareness of the grace of God in which we stand and live and breathe and move, um, that we might become wholeheartedly willing in any way God calls you to be willing, that your heart might be fully there with God. And then that generosity would just be a response, just a response to that. That's all it is. So might we do so by practicing gratitude in small things, like I said, by understanding that God provides all things to us. And then through this growing awareness of the redemption, this redemption story that we're all part of. Okay? Austin, I'll invite you guys back up, and uh, we're going to sing one more. Kiddos, come on in. Let's pray.
We come to you, God, uh, again, grateful for the day in which we have been given. It is a gift, God. We would all confess and acknowledge we didn't cause it and we're not sustaining it. And so as we enter into it, God, in the different moments of the day, Father's Day, Juneteenth, family life, thinking about the week ahead, perhaps even thinking about the demands of the week ahead, which can include some of the demands on us, time demands, financial demands, um, relational demands, God. God, would you enter into that mix with us? Might we be in conversation with you today around all those things? Um, And might you move in our hearts, God, both personally, individually, but also in our families, collectively in this church, widely, God, might you open our hearts to your grace. Remind us throughout this day, God, that you have done everything we need and we can be grateful for that. Thank you for this remaining time of worship. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.